Hello everyone, my name is Kevin Watkins. I'm a visiting professor at the Faraz Lalji Institute at the London School of Economics. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome all of you to the third in the ODI series discussions on multilateral development banks. I think this discussion comes at a particularly critical moment in international development financing as we see growing gaps between the recovery of richer and poorer countries in the uh, after covid we see so many countries that are now facing a financing crisis with respect to food security as a result of the disruption caused by the war in ukraine Multilateral development banks offer very distinctive opportunities for developing countries to respond to these challenges, which have a very direct bearing, of course, on the sustainable development goals. Uh, MDBs, multilateral development banks, are able to provide financing uh, on terms which are more favorable and affordable to middle-income and lower-middle-income countries and financial markets, as well as concessional and grant financing. They provide policy advice. They have enormous convening power. And of course, they, because of the structure of their business model and lending operations, they have multiplier effects for development financing that can't be replicated through bilateral aid. All of those attributes, I, I believe, have a very direct bearing on some of the great challenges facing policymakers in developing countries today. We, we're here now to discuss one specific and I think underexplored aspect of MDB operations, which is their perception among policymakers and the policy community government officials, planners, budget authorities in developing countries. The paper that we're here to discuss will, I, I believe, give us some great insights into how MDB operations are perceived in developing countries and hope, hopefully inform policy decisions going ahead. We, we have three core questions at the heart of today's agenda. First, what is it that policymakers in developing countries value most about the MDB business model and uh, partnership? Second, what do government officials see as the primary strengths and weaknesses in that model and partnership? And third, how is demand for MDB financing and collaboration likely to evolve in the years ahead? We have an absolutely fantastic panel to discuss those issues with us today. The, to very briefly introduce the panel, we have Samantha Custer, who is the Director of Policy Analysis uh, at Data a research lab at the College of William and Mary. And Samantha herself has been very closely involved in the design and development of a number of leadership 
surveys, which we'll have an opportunity to discuss in the course of the dialogue. Anita Prakash, who is a senior policy advisor in the office of the President of Economic Research Institute for ASEAN and East Asia, based in Jakarta, um, in, in Indonesia. And, and hence, we're enormously grateful to Anita for joining us at such a, an ungodly hour of the day, and to Samantha as well, I, I should say. Um, one very, very early morning, one very late evening. So thank you to both of you. Ed Brown, who is a Senior Director of Research and Policy Engagement of the Africa Center for Economic Transformation, based in Accra. And Paolo Estevez, who is uh, a senior researcher at the International Relations Institute at the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro. Um, first of all, I want to start by uh, introducing and giving the floor to the author of today's report, Annalisa Prison. And before handing over to Annalisa, I, I would encourage everybody on uh, who's participating in the event to take a look at ODI's wider research on the role of the multilateral development banks in the response to the COVID pandemic, of which this piece of research forms a very important part. So, Annalisa, without further ado, uh, I'll hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin, for your introduction. And uh, in the next few minutes, I would like to focus on six uh, priorities and areas uh, emerging from the report that you just mentioned, Kevin. But before doing so, I would like to kind of uh, briefly explain uh, how the evidence behind this kind of findings uh, had been generated, where it comes from. First of all, last year in 2021, we ran a large-scale survey. Nearly 500 government officials and MDB staff in 73 countries completed an online questionnaire. I know many of you are actually here online joining the seminar. I won't go into the detail into the kind of 73 countries, but you might appreciate from the table in the PowerPoint how many regions we covered in the analysis. In particular, we wanted to cover countries and reach out to countries uh, that uh, have access to highly concessional finance. I'm talking about uh, IDA and blend countries, uh, but also countries that uh, can borrow in international capital markets and receive uh, finance uh, less concessional, but still at better than market rates uh, from multilateral development banks. We focused on six multilateral development banks, either with a global or a regional reach, and with a general mandate on socioeconomic development. We focused on the World Bank, the African, Asian, Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Let me go straight to the first finding. All in all, client countries find the offer of multilateral development banks relevant. We asked uh, uh, representatives in the 73 countries uh, to what extent they kind of rated uh, the different kind of offer of multilateral development banks relevant for the long-term socioeconomic development of their country. At least four out of five respondents actually were of the opinion that uh, MDBs were actually 
contributing uh, and a particular kind of offer extremely or that's the kind of uh, dark green part or very kind of relevant for the socioeconomic development of their own country. And uh, I'm somehow kind of uh, covering the points Kevin has made earlier on about the offer of MDBs emerging from the literature, the provision of finance and better than market terms the offer of policy advice and technical assistance, the ability to generate policy-relevant research and analysis, the strong convening power of bringing kind of different stakeholders together. And finally, which is quite unique for MDBs among development agencies, the combination of all these kind of roles and functions. Results were pretty consistent across regions and lending terms, but I would like to highlight one important point, that financing a better the market terms was actually relevant for all countries borrowing a different lending terms. Might now sound surprising, but actually the vast majority of respondents in Africa and East Asia, South Asia and the Pacific and either countries uh, thought that actually pro the provision of financing at better than market terms was extremely relevant uh, for the socioeconomic development of their own country. We're talking about two thirds. But going uh, to the case of uh, countries borrowing in non concessional terms, uh, still 50% uh, of the respondents were the opinion that financing below market rates was still very important. So let's remember that financing offered by MDBs is relevant across the board. A key finding, client countries find the offer of MDBs relevant, but what about the effectiveness? We asked government officials about their perception about how MDBs deliver the four different functions we just kind of described. And all in all, the majority of government officials rated MDBs extremely or very effective institutions. There were differences, though in terms of kind of functions and institutions. In this particular case, we looked at individual multilateral development banks. With its global reach, the World Bank was... ...rated flag that also regional development banks were rated as highly effective by their client countries. In America, actually, Development Bank was rated more than the World Bank across all the four different roles and functions that we just highlighted. We have seen MDBs are considered what they offer is considered kind of relevant for the client countries that perceived as effective institutions. But what about future demand for grants, loans, technical assistance, and policy advice? All in all, the majority of respondents felt that the demand for grants, loans, TA and policy advice would increase in the next five to 10 years. Actually, when asked, assuming, of course, kind of unlimited supply, actually 56% of respondents were of the opinion that in the medium term, in the next five to 10 years, their demand in the graph we focus on grants and loans, grants and loans will go up in the medium term. Again, there are differences across lending groups and regions. Again, you may expect countries in Africa, East Asia, South Asia, and Pacific, and either countries that have the larger kind of financing gaps and limited access to international capital markets to kind of stress the importance of grants and loans and the kind of direction of future demand. 
But I would like also to kind of flag that actually only 16% of respondents in IBRD countries were of the opinion that the demand for grants and loans from MDBs uh, might go down in the, in the medium term. And again, financing matters also for countries borrowing and non-concessional terms. Let me go to the kind of fourth kind of era I would like to kind of highlight. Uh, the strengths of multilateral development banks from the viewpoint of government officials. Government officials found the financing of multilateral development banks effective when it comes to long-term and predictability, the scale of financing offered and the ability to fill financing gaps. When it comes to operations, uh, government officials found uh, the MDBs quite effective uh, actually providing projects and programs that uh, are aligned to national priorities, that are demand-driven, demand so very strong on ownership, uh, and programs that are focused on the poorest and the most vulnerable. When it comes to technical assistance, in the same way as much as financing is able to kind of fill capacity gaps in government in this case, again, very strong ownership, it's demand driven, it's being found highly specialized, led by knowledgeable staff and of high quality. But let me highlight what the main weaknesses the respondents to our survey highlighted. First of all, when it comes to financing, the most important feature the government officials found of a financing package is the was the flexibility, in particular when it comes to the use of budget support. But flexibility was also the area where MDBs were rated the least effective. When it comes to operations, uh, government officials found uh, procurement and financial management rule uh, complex, rigid, or unfamiliar. Also, heavy burden of management and reporting requirements. Processing time that weren't particularly short. And let me kind of focus on one point on policy conditionality. If you go through the report, you will see we, we kind of uh, raised a series of questions around the impact of policy conditionality. But I would like to flag one particular kind of answer to a specific question. We ask whether the existence of policy conditions actually affect, uh, the, affects the decision about borrowing from MDBs. And this graph is pretty clear. Actually, nearly half of the kind of... Uh, of the group of government respondents were of the opinion that policy conditions uh, do matter a lot. Uh, and uh, four out of five actually think, thought uh, that uh, policy conditions, particularly macroeconomic reforms, uh, have an impact about um, around the kind of decisions on borrowing from MDBs. Last point on the weaknesses on technical assistance and policy advice. There were a few areas where low performance was flagged. First of all, the long-term impact of TA was seen as a kind of a key challenge of TA programs for MDBs, particularly after the program was completed. And the technical assistance and policy advice offered by MDBs didn't score well in terms of good value for money, relatively kind of being cost effective vis-a-vis -vis other kind of options and in terms of independence uh, and responsiveness. And I'm trying to kind of wrap up with a one final point. In a few instances, uh, there were significant discrepancies uh, between the priorities and preferences of government officials uh, versus the perceptions and views of MDB staff. I can cite a few examples, but they tended to be in two different kind of areas. 
First of all, MDB staff tended to underestimate the importance uh, of certain role of characteristics of the financing and operations for MDBs from the viewpoint of government officials. Or on the contrary, the, in particular in the assistance and policy advice. And I'll give you here a kind of uh, an example. We asked uh, both the government officials, and that's the kind of uh, um, black bar, and MDB official, that's the kind of uh, orange bar, whether certain kind of aspects of technical assistance were important for the socioeconomic development of the country. And actually, you will see that you will you see from this graph that the long-term impact of technical cooperation was rated as the most important kind of dimension alongside others from the viewpoint of government officials. But around the 90%, but uh, it was rated as kind of either very or extremely important by only 60% uh, of respondents among MDB officials and considered also the least important. And this is one of the examples somehow reiterating the importance and the rationale of uh, analyzing the perspectives and the viewpoint of government officials about uh, the operations and the financing of MDBs. And I'll stop here. Annalisa, big thank you. I, I would encourage everybody to read the report. It's not only full of interesting evidence-based data, but it's, it's a very readable report as well. Be, before passing on to Samantha, Annalisa, if I may, just to go slightly off script, I did want to just ask one question by way of follow-up. In the areas where the MDBs scored more negatively, some of the transaction cost areas, for example, what was the point of reference bilateral aid, or was was this a sort of just a generic, uh, generic question that respondents were answering? Indeed, we focus on multilateral development banks only on the kind of individual dimensions of effectiveness. Thank you. Um, so, Samantha, I, I, I think for you there are two really key questions coming out of this. One is comparative, and that is, that is to say that you've, you've, you've conducted your own very large-scale leadership surveys. You know, what, what in the story that Annalisa has just outlined has resonance or, or jumped out as being very different than some of the findings that, that uh, you, you, you drew? Um, and secondly, you know, what if anything really jumped out at you as a as a surprise finding in in this study? Over, over to you, Samantha. Thanks so much, Kevin, <clears throat> for hosting me today, and many congrats to Annalisa and colleagues on this important new report. I'm pleased that I was able to be part of the process of getting it to to the point today. Um, so, Kevin, great questions. <clears throat> First, um, in terms of our 2020 uh, Listening to Leaders survey, so we had nearly 7,000 leaders from 140 countries that had the opportunity to rate the performance of up to 130 bilateral and multilateral development ag agencies, including all of the multilateral development banks covered in uh, the ODI survey that Annalisa just presented. Um, <clears throat> leaders could only evaluate the performance of development partners from whom they reported receiving advice or assistance um, between 2016 and 2020. And this really lends itself to the first key takeaway for me about MDBs. Uh, and this is that they were among the development partners with the largest footprints in that they supplied advice and assistance to the largest number numbers of leaders overall. 
nearly half of our respondents from 137 countries reported receiving advice or assistance from the World Bank, for example. Um, regional development banks such as ADB, ASDB, EBRD, IADB typically worked with about one third to one half of leaders within their respective focus regions. <clears throat> and so this raises another question, what did we mean by performance in our survey? In the report, we typically looked at two measures. So influence was our upstream measure. Uh, who do leaders listen to most when they're setting their development policy agenda? We measured this in the survey based on the percentage of respondents who said a partner was quite or very influential in shaping their country's policy priorities. And helpfulness was our downstream measure. So when it comes to translating policy ideas into practical solutions, who do leaders turn to for help in implementation? And we measure this in the survey based on the percentage of respondents who said a partner was quite or very helpful in implementing policy changes. And so this raises a second key takeaway about MDBs from our survey. And that is that it was they were generally as a group highly regarded on both measures of performance by the leaders they seek to support. The World Bank was rated the second most influential development partner globally. 86% of the leaders who reported receiving its advice or assistance identified the World Bank as quite or very influential in shaping their policy priorities. Similarly, regional development banks were quite influential within their respective geographic areas, as typically three quarters or more of leaders who worked with these institutions rated them as influential. And so uh, we also found that both the World Bank and the regional MDBs were among the most helpful development partners, according to more than 80% of respondents. Um, I will say across all of these measures, the Asian investment, uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank was a little bit of an exception to this rule, trailing behind some of the other MDBs. Um, when we look beyond the results of 2020, though, and assess the trajectory of development partner performance over time, I think what's really interesting is that respondents have consistently identified MDBs among their most influential and helpful partners on three global surveys we've conducted in 2014, 2017, and 2020. And so this is a pretty powerful validation from the bottom up that these actors are doing something right. So that's a good segue, I think, to your second question, Kevin. Um, so similar to what Annalisa presented, um, the consistently strong performance of MDBs in our survey over the years is a good reminder that multilateral organizations are durable and powerful levers to support policy change in low and middle income countries. And if anything, I think the value proposition of MDBs may become even more pronounced amid intensified great power competition rhetoric. You know, as countries in the global south are increasingly looking for comparatively neutral players that they consider to be trustworthy. Um, <clears throat> secondly, you know, when we asked leaders what they valued most in development partners, irrespective of whether they were bilateral or multilateral actors, um, leaders revealed preferences aligned quite well with many of the aspects that Annalise had presented as perceived strengths of MDBs. So um, leaders want partners that target both financial resources, particularly grants and loans at better than market rates, along with technical expertise, and to do that in alignment with national priorities. Um, leaders want uh, their partners to have a commitment to plan for the long-term sustainability of development projects and programs. And they, they have an emphasis on being demand-driven, particularly in pursuing close consultation with local stakeholders and being responsive to the local context. Um, 
I will say there were some clear areas of growth for MDBs, though, to continue to sustain and improve their performance that were highlighted in both the ODI and the LTL surveys. And one particular area is that 40% of leaders on our survey emphasize the importance of iterative ad adaptation of strategies to be responsive to changing local needs. And per the ODI survey, the inflexibility of MDBs may make this challenging. And then finally, <clears throat> there's an interesting point of divergence between the two surveys, I think. Um, and this is when we presented a range of conditions to leaders in the context of trade-offs between different attributes of projects that they, that they could choose from. We found that our respondents were more likely to choose aid projects with regulations attached, actually. And this included efforts to reduce corruption by 13 percentage points, minimize environmental damage by 10 percentage points, protect workers from unfair labor practices by six percentage points and requiring public disclosure of the aid agreement terms over those that did not by 10 percentage points. So maybe the intuition here, Kevin, is that leaders may be more open to specific conditions when they see them being aligned to their priorities and desire to lock in uh, political cover for reform. So with that, maybe that's some good food for thought for now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Samantha. That, that was some really great initial reflections to get the ball rolling. Um, I, I do want to abuse my uh, authority in the chair to book one question in advance for the question and answer session, both for you and Annalisa. And the, it, it does seem to me there's a paradox, well, maybe paradox is putting it too strongly, but a, a tension between some of the claimed attributes of the MDBs that come out of the survey, their flexibility, uh, their responsiveness, the long-term financing, the quality of the policy advice that they provide. And the graph that you showed right at the end, Annalise, which basically shows that concern over policy advice appears to be um, a, a potential barrier to demand or is perceived as one of the downsides. So I, I would like to come back to that question, but we'll do that in the um, in the question and answer session that's coming up shortly. Um, what I'd like to do now is to pass over to Anita, um, Anita Prakash. And Anita, what, 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 what I would ask you to do for our, our audience is to really maybe just stand back from some of the specific findings to give us a little bit of a deeper dive into how the MDBs are perceived in an Asian context. And I know that's a very big question because there's a very large portfolio of countries that come under that heading. But could you just give us some sort of sense of how policymakers in your region that you're engaged with uh, view the strengths and weaknesses of the MDBs and their future role? Uh, Anita, over to you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, yes, um, uh, two very, uh, very, very uh, brilliant uh, outlooks uh, we've just heard on the performance of MDBs. Um, much of the information collected through survey, uh, at least as I understood from Annalisa's uh, presentation, was through questionnaires circulated among officials. Um, the experience in Asia um, at the ground level, where the where the projects actually operate, um, those uh, findings actually require to be matched with, in, in, in my case, uh, the Asian experience. And uh, uh, more and more, um, as we see here uh, in Asia, uh, 
is that uh, the MDBs uh, have a very strong relationship with governments, no doubt about it. And they continue to sit in important strategy meetings and uh, uh, development outlook meetings. That is also correct. But whether it all actually translates into a major stakeholding of the developmental projects, that is where the real, uh, I see a bit of a dichotomy uh, here. Um, uh, typically, MDBs have a very good working relationship uh, with the governments. And because of their knowledge and capacity uh, sharing, this relationship continues to uh, uh, exist in uh, much of uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, and uh, even East Asia, uh, I would say. But uh, uh, sharing my own uh, experience, both in the government and now uh, in a regional economic research organization, where we also work closely with all the regional governments. So when I had the opportunity to work with the World Bank uh, uh, as part of a funding consortia that supported the uh, universalization of the primary education program in India, it was a humongous program. This was during the late 90s and early 2000s. Now, that was the time when India had already uh, graduated uh, from the MDB's participation in infrastructure projects, which were, uh, which were uh, um, uh, mainstream uh, during 60s and 70s uh, phase of development. Uh, but uh, in 90s, they were mostly restricted to what is called the developmental sector and also had a small uh, uh, presence in social sector. Um, in terms of resource matching, financial resource matching, the host countries had started taking a huge, uh, 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 they were carrying the largest burden of the resources, so to speak. Uh, the banks, the banks were present uh, in the projects, but their financial contribution actually amounted to a very, very small percentage of the project cost. And eventually, as the 2000s followed, uh, the realization in the government, at least in India, when I was working in uh, human resource development and later in the Commerce Ministry, was that the cost of administration of the financing was actually far greater. Um, than the financing itself. So that was the time when, um, when uh, India, uh, 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 a huge sect, uh, a huge country for the MDBs, had started to wean itself away from MDB contributions. Uh, uh, and by the end of the 2000s, uh, this sort of uh, participation was uh, largely complete. Uh, 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 in at least in the Indian developmental story. And now we see a similar thing in the ASEAN region. Uh, financially, there is, a, uh, there is a diminishing role of MDBs in the developmental projects. And there has been a corresponding rise uh, in the bilateral cooperation as we are seeing in India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and triangular international cooperation as we see in the Mekong region. So uh, these are very significant development from a resource contribution point of view. But, uh, but uh, there is no doubt 
that MDBs continue to participate in the strategy uh, making uh, processes uh, in most of the countries in Asia, uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, it is also a fact that localized MDBs, such as ADB and uh, now AIIB, they have uh, a better influence on the financing of uh, infrastructure projects, which is the core of the development uh, in this region. Uh, because uh, uh, creating a political consensus uh, uh, across the projects is much easier for uh, these local uh, uh, localized uh, MDBs. So what we are really seeing here, uh, Kevin, at the ground level is that more and more the MDBs are now becoming knowledge partners really for the governments. And in many cases, capacity enablers also, uh, rather than major financing partners. Um, uh, the relatively uh, new success of uh, AIIB is more due to the financing of, um, I should say, smaller and localized uh, infrastructure projects uh, like uh, sanitation or drinking water in one city, Jakarta, Bangalore. Uh, so, so these are very easier to uh, sort of develop and finance and create a political uh, consensus around these projects. Much easier to navigate uh, in terms of clearances and operation, etc. Um, so, uh, and this is as opposed to the heavy duty projects of ADB World Bank, which require greater political mobilization and consensus. Um, but, uh, but there is a new lifeline around MDBs in this region. Um, through the multilateral platforms that are that have now come up in terms of uh, uh, policies uh, uh, such as uh, G20, which has created new rules for uh, World Bank for infrastructure and financing principles. But uh, we are yet to see uh, the MDBs to clearly grasp the importance of these emerging bilateral, triangular and uh, multilateral uh, cooperation uh, in terms of project development and development strategy per se. But uh, slowly but surely, uh, this new role for MDBs is emerging uh, in uh, Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, including East Asia. I'll stop there, Kevin, uh, but uh, happy to take any supplementary uh, questions on this. Anita, big, a really big thank you for those in incredibly valuable insights. One of the themes that you touch on that I would like to come back to is the ten not the tension necessarily, but the relationship between bilateral aid and multilateral aid. And I guess one really important question, you know, not least in the context of the most recent uh, UK development strategy, which is recalibrating yes. UK aid much more towards a sort of bilateral focus. You know, does, does this imply potential trade-offs or are there approaches which can strengthen complementarities? But I think that's a, a question that we'll come back to in the broader discussion. Um, I'd like to turn now to Ed, Ed Brown from ASAT. Um, and Ed, I, I guess in a way, the 
question to you is, is both a little bit different than for some of the other panelists, but, but also the same. It, it's different in the sense that Africa is probably the region more than any other where MDB financing has a, has a much weight, greater weight in relation to national financing than in, in uh, some of the other regions that we've been discussing. But I, I think many of the broader governance questions about the quality of MDB interventions, the engagement with policymakers remain the same. So we're very, I'm very much looking forward to hearing your reflections on the findings and your own uh, experience in ASEC. Thank you, Ed, over to you. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me to participate in this conversation. Uh, I, I think uh, the report certainly highlights a number of key issues which resonates with my own experience, you know, uh, I mean, dealing with um, NDBs after several years of being part of the NDBs myself. Um, when I left the bank um, in 2008 and we started uh, ASSET. Um, I think the, the issues or the strengths that had been listed by um, the ODI report are quite uh, pertinent and they are, they are, they are reflective of the, of, of the views of the policymakers themselves. Um, sure, sure enough, um, since the report did not really go beyond interviewing policymakers, uh, there are several divergent views also if one looks at the stakeholders, you know, the private sector, the NGO community, and so on in many of these countries. But notwithstanding, I think the report reflects largely the opinions of the policymakers. The concessionality is very important, the technical support, policy credibility, convening power, all those things were, I mean, I think um, if you ask any of the policymakers, they would certainly say that this has been a positive impact on, on, their, on, on their economies. There is always some element of trepidation, and particularly when it comes to um, uh, the, the, the problem of bureaucracy and procurement, which many of these countries feel are too rigid, and uh, occasionally there's also the concern of about misalignment of, um, of uh, the NDB support to the national strategies. Um, the, the conditionality, I mean, the conditionality issue is raised more often. And um, in fact, to the extent that with the IMF, uh, the general populace are always very um, anxious and unwilling to support the government going to the IMF. Examples in Ghana, Ghana has been facing some major financial challenges in the, in the last several months post-COVID. And uh, there has always been some speculation regarding whether they should uh, go to the, I mean, to the IMF or not. Uh, but there's a lot of resistance in that area. And I think it's partly related to the fact that um, they're talking about uh, the fact, I mean, the conditionalities which they feel are too draconian. But at the same time, there is clear evidence that many of these governments are not addressing the major governance challenges that bedevil their, their economic transformation. And there's the need for a much more serious approach to that, to revenue mobilization, you know, domestic revenue mobilization and so on. So there is a certain element of, um, 
I mean, th there is a strong support for NDB, I mean, financing, but there's also some trepidations regarding um, NDP's I mean, financing in terms of the governance requirements, the conditionalities, and so on. And in the last, I think, um, about three, four years since many of these countries, in some sense, didn't, were not on the IMF program because they felt that the debt sustainability uh, was, was manageable, they had access to capital markets. And there, many of them goofed. And at the moment, you can see that there's a rising debt distress in Africa. Most of the countries have a, a debt to GDP ratios around 70% or more. And therefore, this fiscal space for, for them to be able to deal with the post-COVID, and even before COVID, pre-COVID also, they had these challenges. But even more so now, and then the Ukrainian crisis is, is putting tremendous pressure. Inflation is rising and so on. And some of the questions that um, the, I mean, the international community is asking, and, and particularly some of the countries, is the extent to which the MDBs as currently constituted and given the massive need for external financing to really uh, build, build forward better, if you will. I call it build forward better because build, building back better, there wasn't that much better in the back, so you need to build forward better. Uh, that they need more resources. And there are beginning to be questions about the extent to which the current institutional and governance arrangement of the MDBs offers the flexibility enough to mobilize huge, much larger resources to finance, you know, the recovery process. And you, you've all been witness to the issue of the SDRs and the 100 billion that has been allocated and the need for the advanced economies with uh, FDI reserves to be able to put it into, in, into the, I mean, pocket for every, I mean, to support financing of African economies. So these are some of the challenges and emerging um, concerns regarding the role of the MD MDBs. And the African uh, countries, just recently, the, uh, the ECA, the UN ECA held its uh, Council of Ministers in Dakar, where they're talking about how to finance, you know, and establish even a stabilization fund to support uh, the economies as they begin to emerge from uh, the COVID and perhaps also to be able to, uh, uh, I mean, absorb some of the shocks that are emerging from the Russian-Ukrainian war, which is basically, you know, the inflation rates are very high. In fact, at the moment, if you look at the inflation rates in many of the countries, some of them in Ghana is almost 20, 23% now. And just a few months earlier, it was in the single digits, you know. So these are some of the concerns that are emerging. And the question is whether or not the MDBs as currently constituted would offer enough financing to be able to build forward better. The IMF in the spring meeting, which I attended, also came up with the Resilient and Sustainability Trust, which is also going to help to support. But the amount of money, although they've been able to mobilize over six, 450 billion, for, I think it's 45 billion for the Resilient and Sustainability Fund, there is a major gap in financing. So these are some of the issues that Africa is, I think it's, it's relatively unique to the African circumstances because if you look at the Asian economies, they had accumulated savings enough during the COVID era to be able to continue to have the fiscal space to deal with some of the 
uh, impacts in health, education, and so on. But in Africa, there isn't that. You know, so there was a very tight fiscal space and the governance arrangement to a weak domestic resource mobilization is very low. In most countries, it's less than 15% of GDP, you know, with the exception of a few like in South Africa and so on. So the, the, the role of the MDBs is, is increasingly important, but the nature of the institution and its requirements and how it's supposed to build and mobilize even more greater resources to finance African economies, building forward better, I think is what is the ongoing debate. So I'll stop here for the moment. Ed, thank you. Again, tremendously insightful reflection. And it, I, it does seem to me that's one of the really core questions we'll come back to in the question and answer session as well, because one of the trends of the past few years has been certainly from the G20 and the G7, uh, an increasing emphasis placed on the role of the MB MDBs as a potential source of financing on infrastructure, on climate, uh, on post-COVID recovery, and a gap between those aspirations, if you like, and the real financing that is actually coming out of MDBs, which has been highlighted by uh, ODI research in other areas. Um, but let me turn now to Paolo, Paolo Estevez. Um, Paolo, it, it, it's actually great that we have you here, but also great, I think, that we have you coming straight after Ed, because in some respects, your region is at a very different end of the spectrum, that there are certainly many governments in the region have in recent years been able to take advantage of low interest rates in international financial markets in a way that African governments haven't. And so they have had alternatives to MDB financing. And of course, in the region, you, you also have uh, many other institutions. So I'd be interested to hear from you reflecting on Annalisa's presentation, what you see as some of the main differences and some of the uh, similarities with what you've heard from other regions. So, uh, Paolo, over to you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Kevin. Uh, first, let me express my appreciation and gratitude to Annalisa to invite me for inviting me uh, to join uh, this panel and discuss discuss the excellent and extremely relevant work on MDB she is leading uh, at the ODI. I'm a big fan of uh, of her work uh, uh, since many, many, many years, and I have been quoting uh, her work very often. Uh, thanks for your questions, Kevin. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad that I came after uh, after Edward, uh, and I will probably tackle or, or, or discuss some of the issues he he, he raised uh, during his uh, his uh, <clears throat> uh, presentation. So uh, uh, yes, I do think that in case of Latin America, or particularly in South America, uh, uh, the case of CAF as a, an alternative source of, of, of funding or, or an alternative force, source of financing for development is not worthy. CAF, for those uh, who, who do, do not know uh, the institution, is called the Corporación Andina de Fomento, and it was created as part of the institutional mushrooming uh, which took place in the 60s. Among the MDBs, CAF may be considered a success case. 
the bank has grew from a handful of shareholders and union uh, countries in the in the 60s to a truly Latin American, or if you wish, a truly Ibero-American uh, uh, bank since Portugal and Spain have uh, recently joined uh, the bank as shareholders. One important interesting point about CAF's relevance to South American countries is the structure of its portfolio. Almost 50% of its operations are con concentrated in the infrastructure sector, comprising transportation, energy, and water and sanitation. According to CAF itself, more than 60% of its operations are related to what they call productive infrastructure and social infrastructure. Productive infrastructure, infrastructure is uh, uh, related to energy, transport, and telecommunications, and social infrastructure are mainly uh, water, sanitation, education, and uh, urban development. So we are talking about 60% of investment in, uh, in infrastructure, uh, a, a small part of it uh, uh, dedicated or, or targeting uh, uh, a, a social sector uh, like, uh, like education. According to CAF, it's, uh, uh, sorry, one interesting question pops up from this data. And this question, I think it's, it's related to what uh, Edward, uh, Edward was discussing uh, uh, before. Uh, from, the, from the one side, the portfolio shows a growing demand for investments in infrastructure from the governments in the region. CAF itself presented its foothold in the infrastructure sector as, quote unquote, confirming the institution's strategic interest in supporting underserved sections of the population through the provision of basic services such as roads, transport, and energy, and clean water and sanitation, and urban uh, development. From the other side, the match between national policymakers and CAF strategies may point to a progressive reinforcement of key development practices in the region associated precisely with an export structure concentrated in primary and extractive sectors with low levels of sophistication. To be fair, it is important to note that CAF's initiatives to enhance product productive in, re in the region uh, uh, are there. Nevertheless, the portfolio seems to speak for itself. Another common feature, which seems com to confirm the findings that, uh, that uh, uh, your research, Annalisa, uh, has uh, has uh, has uh, has raised uh, is uh, uh, is related to the conditionalities adopted by CAF. Indeed, compared to the World Bank or even the I, uh, IA, IADB, CAF's conditionalities are much less onerous uh, and therefore closer to the borrowers' interest. Such difference in, is generally attributed to the fact that in that in the case of CAF. The shareholders are the main borrowers. Nevertheless, what appears uh, as an increased ownership may also mean, uh, uh, and I, I, will, I will stop there, uh, uh, may also mean lowering social environmental safeguard. And when we look to the, to the uh, South American environment, so to the South American region, particularly to the Amazon region, what we are going to find is actually a, a, a deliberately uh, uh, Initiative, deliberate uh, initiative to lower uh, environmental standards. You may find in the region, particularly uh, uh, again, particularly in the Amazon region, which is key 
for many uh, uh, for the, the entire sustainability agenda, you may find countries adopting uh, what they call express licensing processes, which which means basically that the license the, the environmental licenses licenses are granted uh, with less and less uh, uh, demands from the part of the government and the the, the the banks that are aligned with national systems for social of social environmental protection will end up buying this uh, 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 this process or, or supporting this process of lowering uh, uh, social environmental safeguards uh, in the region. I'm not sure if I, I answer your question, but uh, the, so, the, the, as, the, as these countries have access to other sources of financing, like CAF, for instance, or even in the market, in the financial market, they may, be, they may avoid conditionalities, and in doing so, they are free to lower uh, the the social environmental safeguards in, the, in their own uh, territories. Thank you, Kevin. Paula, that, that was great. Thank you. And you, you actually, you not only answered the question, but I think you've given us a great segue into one of the questions that figures quite prominently from the audience, which is on the, the issue of conditionality. And there's a specific question from Carlos Gamito, who's an ODI fellow in Timor-Leste, which is asking, are there different perspectives by region on the conditionality um, question? You know, are there major differences between regions? Now, I'm going to come back to you on to, I think to all of you on this, if you could answer in, in brief, but I, I did want to throw in a couple of um, additionals to Carlos's question, which is, you know, if we know one thing from the history of conditionality, it's that it doesn't work. I mean, there is, there's so much work on this. So at one level, it's sort of surprising to see this resurfacing in such a stark way in the survey you know, with very different perspectives. And I think Paolo's point is surely a very relevant one that, you know, if you're a major shareholder in the institution, the conditionality is likely to reflect your perception of what's good for the economy, good for the country. If you're a minor shareholder, you're presumably at much greater risk of receiving diktats from major shareholders. Now, um, so I know this, these questions will play out in very different ways in different contexts. And, and Samantha, I think, introduces you know, a very familiar theme with a new twist, which is governments who seek to, if you like, hide behind MDB conditionality for unpopular decisions, which is, of course, a, a route to weakening accountability but nonetheless is an obvious uh, device, I suspect, especially for more populist inclined governments. So I'd really appreciate from each of you just some further quick reflections on the conditionality question. And then I'm gonna come on to the second big theme that I think has emerged, which is around the additionality of uh, MDB financing. But let's kick off with the, MD, with the conditionality question. And, Maybe, Samantha, since, since you got the ball rolling on this, I'm going to uh, pass the ball back to you. 
to start sure, with. happy to um yeah and i you know i confess you know in your question earlier you asked about things that were surprising to me uh from the survey results and this was one of the things that was surprising to me i you know i had hypothesized and assumed that people would generally be very, very anti-conditionality or, or regulations. That didn't seem to be the case. And I guess, you know, the takeaway would be um, the devil might be in the details here. You know, when you talk about conditionality or regulation in general terms, it's easy for kind of countries and leaders to say, oh, I don't like that. That's constraining my autonomy. But then when you start getting into specific types of conditionalities or policies, then leaders may be starting to judge these on the merits of how much they see them as being aligned with what they wanted to do anyway. There's some great governance literature that has talked about the benefits of going with the grain of reform rather than against the grain. So when when the stars align, that could be advantageous. The other thing I was going to say um, is that, you know, it's important to recognize that when you ask about preferences in absolute terms, like do you like conditionalities or not? people might answer that differently than if you're asking them to make trade-offs. And so for this reason, we actually presented our survey respondents with randomized descriptions of hypothetical aid projects that varied across various dimensions. So, you know, you, you could pick a project that had ABC characteristics, and you might actually, under some conditions, choose a project with more conditions attached if, for, for example, it had other features that were advantageous, like access to, to lower no-interest loans or, <laughs> or grants. So it's all about those, those trade-offs there. And the thing I would also add to this is, you know, to the question that was raised in the chat, we actually assessed whether this um, held true across regions. It does. And it held true if you break our respondents into kind of government officials, so both executive branch and parliamentarians versus non-governmental actors, so civil society and the private sector, we thought, oh, certainly government officials will not like conditionalities relative to the others. And that wasn't the case. It held true in both. So, you know, just some additional food for thought. There. Thanks, Samantha. Ed, could I come to you next? Because, yeah. you know, I, I, I do think this question may be looms much larger on the policy horizon yeah. of the country you're talking to yeah. us from than some other context. So yeah. maybe just some reflections on the, the Ghana context. Well, even more generally, I think um, what Samantha is saying is very true, that if you, if you ask a blanket question about conditionality, there's almost a knee-jerk reaction that it's they don't want it. And the history of the structural adjustment programs of the 80s and 90s also continues to hunt a lot of the governments because overall it didn't work. Um, but there is still a lot of anti-conditionality sentiments you know, in the African continent and particularly for targeting more so the IMF than the ADB or the World Bank because this might be more you know, project specific and all that. Uh, there's also um, a knowledge gap because when even in the hierarchy of government officials, uh, many of them do not have adequate information on the content of the engagement that uh, the MDBs have with them. And therefore they may not be privy to some of these conditionalities or even conditions for success. I hate to use conditionalities because, uh, for example, 
um, in, in most countries today, when we're talking about trying to increase uh, domestic revenue mobilization, which has been abysmally low in many countries, as I said earlier, less than 15% of GDP, the tax balance is very low. One of the things that when you begin to dig into what are the compositions of uh, the tax, the revenue itself, you find that in many countries, it is driven by exemptions, exemptions, tax exemptions. And these are sometimes even driven by the donor financing. Because for donors, when they are financing, uh, what is it called? They are uh, I mean, providing financing for projects, they expect that some of these inputs are not going to be taxed. Okay, so there is a fine line between tax exemptions and actually increasing revenue for the government. And but but also there is a the political economy dimension where a lot of the exemptions are driven by the uh, the, the the party cronies who who have had privileges of importing things without paying taxes and so. And that is a serious governance issue. So when you have a country where, where the fund or the, 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 um, or the World Bank is trying to support a macro program, you know, and uh, they're looking at you know, tax revenue and looking at where can you really rake in more, more money and it's, an, it's on the exemption side, there's always a major challenge in that area. And I don't think in many of the countries they've succeeded. But it's clearly one area they should, I mean, go for. But I think generally, as I mean, as Samantha said, the 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 conditionalities are seen more as negative when you're talking about IMF programs than when you're talking about World Bank or ADB pro, I mean, pro projects, because IMF is looking at the broader macro conditions, the balance of payments, and and the fiscal space in order to be able to. So they're looking at how the the resources they are giving to you, which is going to finance the public, I mean, the balance of payments, would ensure that you have, you have, you have undertaken some macroeconomic reforms that, that would create a fiscal space to ensure that you don't come back again to the same debt situation that you were before. And this is always a challenge. Thank you, Ed. Um, what, what I'm um, going to ask, I'm, I'm slightly nervously looking at the clock ticking and I, I do want to make sure that there was a second batch of questions so if I could ask um, Anita and Paolo if you wanted to come back on the conditionality question if you could do it partly in your summing up towards the end and then if I could give you first bite at answering this second set of questions which um, I, I think are well summarized with a question from Ricardo Settimo from the Bank of Italy now, Ricardo himself has written an incredibly important paper on the, um, the, the place of callable capital in MDB financing, which I'd encourage everybody to read, uh, along with um, Annalisa and, and Chris Humphrey's work at um, ODI. But the specific question from Ricardo is, do we have evidence that demand for MDB finance is actually higher than supply. In other words, can we talk about a ration supply of MDB loans uh, and services or not? Now, I think an, an inference from the study might be that that would appear to be the case. 
But I'd be interested, Annalise, before I let you come in on that, um, if I could ask Anita and then Paolo to just share some initial thoughts. So, Anita, is there a ration supply of MDB finance in the region? Uh, uh, no, Kevin. Uh, at least the evidence does not suggest anything of that sort. Uh, and uh, uh, which actually goes back to the um, uh, to the issue of uh, the conditionalities which were spoken about at great length. And I so agree with the points made by Ed, uh, very similar to that in Asia too. And this has therefore uh, a very strong reflection on the uh, financing availability uh, uh, in this region. And uh, uh, there is a definite pecking order of uh, MDBs uh, in this region, as I mentioned in my earlier intervention. IMF, after the uh, great uh, ASEAN financial crisis, is uh, absolutely a big no-no uh, uh, in this uh, region. Uh, and for a similar reason, because IMF comes with the whole set of uh, financial restructuring uh, 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 you know um, uh, bullet points so to speak and uh, countries in this region uh, including south asia have now sort of moved on in creating their own financial policy space for themselves yeah. even if the resources are limited and which is also the reason why uh, uh, kevin um, uh, the bilateral cooperation is now becoming much more prominent. The EU, for example, uh, brings in its own set of uh, 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 its own set of uh, mandate uh, in various sectors of development uh, into the region, uh, along with the funds. Uh, then you have UK uh, in cybersecurity and several other areas of uh, development. Typically, infrastructure remains the most gaping, uh, the biggest gaping hole uh, in this whole uh, narrative. But even in the infrastructure, it's the capacities and the uh, prioritization of the projects where the MDBs are really uh, required. Uh, uh, you know, uh, more and more the countries are opting out from asking for uh, bearing of major costs of the uh, project. Um, to some extent, agricultural uh, innovation is still being funded uh, by a lot, uh, uh, MDBs, especially World Bank, uh, but those are in pockets only. Uh, increasingly, Asia per se, and which is why a story in Pakistan becomes a very big story uh, locally. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's seen as a case of reverse progress rather than uh, what other countries have done as in moving ahead. So no, there is no evidence to uh, support the fact that uh, the demand is higher than the supply. Thank you, Nita. Um, Paolo? I, I uh, would agree with Anita uh, on, uh, on this particular question with, uh, with perhaps one caveat. Uh, I, I do think that there is no evidence that the, the demand uh, is higher than the supply uh, as uh, uh, um, let's say 
uh, with regards to the programs and uh, the strategies adopted by the MDBs right now. And uh, I think uh, uh, when, and, and that leads us back to the question of conditionality, particularly to South, to, to South American countries. You are talking about uh, a bunch of uh, uh, middle-income countries, uh, some higher middle-income countries, some also lower middle-income countries, but in any case, countries which will uh, lose the ability of assessing concessional uh, finance uh, soon uh, if they they did not uh, uh, lost uh, sorry they, if they did not lose already uh, like Uruguay or Chile and so on so uh, that's 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 the the reality of of South American countries which I think uh, for these countries uh, they do not have much interest in the the financial. Uh, lines offered by by the MDBs and the conditionalities attached to this to this to the uh, uh, lines. Thank you, thank you, Paolo. Um, th th this um, is the the part of the proceedings where I have to do something desperately cruel, which is to give each of you one minute to um, sum up any additional reflections you you want to offer. Um, and then uh, at the end of that, Annalisa, if I could ask you to give your own reflections on what you've heard from the panel. So, um, why do, Anita, could I ask you to give us uh, one minute on your your sort of takeaway reflections? Um, uh, yes, uh, uh, I would like to say uh, this, Kevin is that the future of MDBs really lies in uh, closely working with multilateral platforms uh, where they can provide their combined uh, knowledge and resources. I mean, OECD is not an MDB, uh, really. Uh, it's an unlikely candidate, uh, but uh, it has aligned its mandate closer to the multilateral policy bodies. Um, and many of the MDBs, including World Bank, have been assigned increasingly important roles as they need to fulfill uh, uh, through the platforms such as G20, G7, and even the IPCC on issues of infrastructure, financing, climate change, uh, digital connectivity. Now, these are the issues really relevant to the future of development, to the future of work. And that's where the developing countries' real interests lie. So, so if MDBs can really uh, assign themselves increased roles in these areas, uh, you know, Thank that's you, where Anita. I see the future really. Thank you, Anita. Ed, over to you. I, oh, you're on mute, Ed. Yes. Yeah, I, I think there are two, uh, two issues I just want to wrap up with. One, to respond to the demand and supply issue. I think for the case of Africa, given the very tight fiscal space and the, the demand that is required for many of these um, global trends, climate change, you know, employment, innovations, and so on, um, there is a need for additionality. And the current development architecture, global financing architecture, seems to be quite fragmented. And you could see that the G20 came up with a common framework, but it's still very much at, this, at a low level of dynamics. And then the, well, I mean, the IMF has come back with the RST, which is the Resilience and Sustainability Trust, to be able to mobilize additional resources to finance these challenges in Africa. So in, in that respect, I think for African economies, 
given the fact that they, they have very limited fiscal space and the savings rates are extremely low, mobilizing resources at the local level is almost a very difficult challenge. The economies are not growing enough to be able to generate internal revenue. East Asia has a different scenario. Its savings rates are high and therefore they're able to do a lot of things. So in that respect, it's, I, I think there is a challenge there. The other point in terms of the future of, of the MDBs, particularly with regards to Africa, the African Union has come up with the African Trade, you know, I mean, African I mean, um, Trade Agreement, which is the AFCFTA, which is going to underpin the development trajectory, the direction of travel for Africa. Regional integration collaboration is going to be fundamental. Bilateral financing is still much focused on one-on-one -on -one to countries. But the MDBs have an opportunity, given their broader reach, to be able to provide resources to support collaboration at the cross-country level. And for, most, for many countries in Africa, the challenge today is that as individual countries, their capacity to transform, given their limited market, will be dependent on collaboration with their neighbors and those in the region. So thinking local but acting regional is going to be very, very important. Yeah, Thanks, for that. And the MDBs would, could offer tremendous support in that area, including the EU, for example. So I just Thank you, Ed. Thank you so much, Ed. Um, Samantha. Sure. Thanks, Ed. Um, <clears throat> so I guess in my sum up, I would say, you know, I think multilateral development ba banks have proven to be, have remarkable staying power in terms of perceived effectiveness and relevance. But I think we also need to recognize that the nature of demand for what MDBs do may be shifting. So these institutions are increasingly being outstripped in terms of overall financing by bilateral actors like China or the international capital markets on infrastructure financing, which came up quite a bit today. Um, but at the same time, um, there are new market opportunities that MDBs could pursue. And I think particularly on the financing side, um, smaller countries, you know, we find have more negotiation leverage when they have more partners to choose from. And so a way to think about the role of MDB financing in future would be primarily to boost their negotiation leverage to get better terms from big bilaterals. And then beyond financing, I think that there will be an even more important role for MDBs to play in future as trusted neutral conveners to crowding collective action across partners, as well as supply that highly valued expertise that really continues to be their perceived comparative advantage versus bilaterals. I think you're on mute, Kev. Okay. I'm sorry, uh, Paolo. Um, Annalisa, before Paolo kicks off, can I just ask, um, are we going to be summarily cast off air at uh, quarter past the hour, or could we bargain for another five minutes? We can bargain for five more minutes. Okay. Go ahead. We'll, we'll apply stringent conditionality. We'll work out what the conditionality is going to be, but um, it will be stringently applied. Paolo, over to you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Um, I, I think my main takeaway is, uh, uh, is, is uh, uh, about conditionalities, but I want to revert the equation. Uh, first, we, we, uh, I completely agree with, uh, uh, with the, the question raised by, uh, by Samantha, Edward, and uh, Anita about, uh, the, about the need of differentiate conditionalities 
uh, what I, I, we may call first generation and second generation, the structural adjustment law uh, in the 80s and, uh, and uh, the policy conditionalities in the 90s. I, I think we, we do need to, to uh, uh, separate these things, to discriminate these things. And we do need to recognize, as Samantha did, uh, that many governments hide, uh, be, uh, hide below the conditionalities uh, uh, and uh, actually use the conditionalities as well to impose some policies in, the, in their own countries. Particularly with respect in Latin America uh, or in South America, particularly with, with respect of the structural adjustment lowers in the past. Uh, uh, the question now is: much of the governments in South America are uh, opting to uh, find alternative sources of financing in a way to avoid conditionalities. Not the macroeconomic conditionalities, though, but particularly the policy conditionalities, which are not conditionalities. These are internationally agreed holding standards. Uh, and uh, my question is, uh, uh, this is my, my main take today, uh, the, the, the borrowers uh, should put their demands where their mouth was, their, their, their mouth were, uh, uh, because they agreed with these standards in many, many, many occasions. So these standards should be adopted by all the, 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 the multilateral development banks, uh, 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 including these the, the smaller banks like CAF, which was the example that I, I brought uh, to the floor today. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin, you are muted. Thank you, Annalisa. You've you've heard a, a, a great deal of reflection triggered by the report. Could you maybe just give us your own two minutes worth reflections on the reflection? First of all, thank you so much to all my fellow panelists. Uh, um, I think it's kind of it was a very enriching and kind of thoughtful discussion. And to all the questions that uh, were passed on through the chat, and we'll do our best also to answer them uh, um, later on. First of all, just let, let me kind of remind, I mean, we are in a kind of in a situation where we have global challenges, uh, climate change, uh, pandemic preparedness, uh, global recovery. And again, uh, that should be even more supported to those organizations that are actually better placed to address those challenges. So somehow increasing the kind of contributions towards the multilateral system. And there's also kind of an element of... Uh, efficiency of spending. I mean, we should kind of remind ourselves that uh, the multilateral development banks, even in the concessional finance for IDA, for example, have the ability to mobilize by definition because their banks, uh, on top of their paid-in capital, are kind of a much greater volume uh, than the paid-in capital of shareholders. So from an efficiency perspective uh, and good value for money, multilateral development banks remain quite relevant. Uh, um, very rich discussion. Uh, I just want to kind of reiterate uh, how much we're kind of founding a discussion uh, and corroborating uh, the, the questionnaire and the results of the survey, how much uh, MDBs remain relevant, uh, effective institutions, uh, and certainly there's a kind of a potential demand going forward. And I would like to kind of plug in this kind of point. Uh, yes, uh, the there are some MDBs where supply is in excess of demand because they have kind of lending room to do so. But bearing in mind also the kind of scaling up kind of response, even now in response to the kind of uh, the current uh, crisis we're experiencing in Ukraine and the kind of knock-on effects, uh, 
many MDBs are kind of scaling up their kind of uh, response and efforts. Uh, it might be feasible in the short term, but for some MDBs, uh, the kind of lending headroom will kind of shrink. Uh, and there, there's a kind of a need to kind of supplement resources, either by a general capital increase in certain cases or be more generous with the replen replenishment rounds. Uh, I don't have much time to elaborate on the policy conditionality that uh, it was it was an element that they would deserve actually a deep dive in a future kind of survey. So certainly a kind of an area for work to kind of uh, expand and getting into more kind of details uh, on that. But thank you so much for for all the kind of comments and reflection. Uh, over to you, Kevin. Thank you, Annalisa. Well, let, let me start by just thanking what I thought was a really brilliant panel with some great reflections. Uh, to thank you, Annalisa, for a fantastic report, but also you know, to thank both you and your colleagues across ODI for the work that you've done in, in putting multilateral development banks right at the centre of a, a really important debate. Maybe if I could just a couple of very quick reflections on, on my side. I think, first of all, we, we were asked the question, is there an excess demand for MDB finance? And, and the, the, there's clearly not a clear-cut answer to that question. But I would say my own answer is that there certainly should be. Because if you look at the financing gap against the climate goals, uh, which are estimated by Nick Stern and others at the IEA for emerging markets, in excess of 1 trillion US dollars annually to 2030. If you look at the financing gaps for the SDGs, there is clearly a critical need for new um, and additional and affordable finance. And, you know, I mean, Ed was speaking to us from Ghana. Ghana is borrowing in capital markets at 7 and 8% interest. And that, that seems to me incompatible with uh, the country's ambitions on the sustainable development goal uh, priorities. Uh, I think secondly, there's, uh, it, it strikes me in the next survey that there may be a case for looking in a more differentiated basis at the role of MDBs in relation to infrastructure financing versus some areas of social sector financing, because I think some of the challenges are very different on infrastructure it's much more about leveraging private capital uh, and using public finance to crowd in uh, private finance than in some areas of social protection, health and education, for example. But uh, I want to conclude by saying I think we've had an incredibly rich debate to thank all of you for participating. To those of you who asked questions, thank you for some great questions to our um, panelists in um, the US, have a great day. To our panelists in Jakarta, have a good night's sleep. To our panelists every, everywhere else, a huge thank you um, to all of you for the contribution that you've made. And again, a big thank you to you, Annalisa. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. Thank you.